You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. You won't find a journal of medicine comprised of failed research, and yet millions of dollars get spent on trial and error and testing that fails. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Joel Heller, and with me today is Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer for Partnership for Cures, a public charity that drives better treatment and cures by patients by testing already approved drugs and other therapies for new uses. There's many reasons why patients don't get the help they need. Can you tell us some of the challenges today in terms of research for cures? Sure. There are a, a number of things that sort of have developed in the research community that stymies getting better treatments and cures to patients. One of the main things is the reward system for people in academia. I think we more reward careers rather than cures. When you're a research scientist, the most important thing for you is to get research funding to continue working in your lab. And the systems are not really set up to look for either real innovations or to look for things that drive cures to patients. About 90% of what we fund is long-term stepwise research where you know, if you've established the first five steps, you now can get funding for the next 30 or 40 steps on your way to a 50-step process. And as long as you continue to make progress, you can continue to get funding. There's nothing wrong with that. It creates a significant amount of information. We have way more information than we have better treatments and cures. And there's really not a system set up for taking those bits of information that come off of those intermediate projects and using them to drive cures to patients. So what we've really said to the academic clinicians and scientists is give us research that looks like something we understand and we can fund consecutively rather than give us research that will drive something quickly to patients. It's not the fault of the scientists. That's the system we've set up. And when you talk to scientists who have innovative ideas, they send them in for funding and they don't score well because there's no data behind them or not enough uh, data or they're not long-term enough or they don't work on a big enough patient population. So on the academic side, that's a problem. Certainly on the industry side, it's so expensive and the regulatory system set up is so difficult to wade through that you can't really afford to do a project that's not going to be a blockbuster. And I'm convinced that there's pharmaceutical companies that have lots of potential treatments for uh, orphan diseases and other diseases of smaller patient populations that are sitting on the shelf because it's too expensive for them to bring them to market. They could never reimburse themselves through the cost of the drugs to pay back for all the work. And with the number of drugs that actually get approved compared to the number that are researched, the odds of even bringing those drugs to market are pretty slim using the regulatory process. Last year, the FDA only approved 17 new drugs, which is the lowest in years. And Pharmaceutical companies and biotech companies in the United States are, you know, working on thousands and thousands of drugs. And if only 17 are getting approved in a year, you can see how difficult the odds are against you. And so you really have to work on only those that you think could make a lot of money for you in the end. So that raises questions about the orphan drug law and, as you said, orphan diseases. When did all that start coming into play and, and how effective has that been? And, and what part of it does your organization take? Orphan drug laws have uh, been on the books for about eight or 10 years. And basically, the idea was to give pharmaceutical companies and other companies an incentive to work on these drugs where they wouldn't be able to make as much money on them because the patient population is so small. So they get significant tax incentives to work on these projects. 
even with all of that, it hasn't pushed a significant amount of drugs to patients with orphan diseases. And, you know, we say orphan diseases and, you know, people think, well, this is, you know, where there's a handful of patients. But in the United States, any disease with under 200,000 people is considered an orphan disease. And a lot of these are diseases that, you know, you know the names of, multiple sclerosis, cystic fibrosis. Is that 200,000 by statute? That's what the statute is on the orphan drug law. You know, they had to have some cutoff point. Now, many, many of the orphan diseases are, you know, diseases that have a couple thousand people or less. You know, the reason we know about MS and cystic fibrosis and a lot of others is there's a significant patient population, and they're able to gather together, raise money, and uh, put some big disease-specific organizations together, and they can help push cures to patients. The smaller ones, some of the, you know, like lysosomal storage diseases, there's, you know, hundreds of those diseases out there that maybe affect, you know, between 100 and 2,000 patients. And if you've got a child with that disease, it's the biggest thing in your life. But if there's only another 200 people in the United States who have a kid with the same disease, it's pretty hard to raise significant funds and get anybody focused on your research. So you asked, you know, how are we involved in that? Well, orphan diseases are just as important to us as any other disease. Since we're not a disease-specific organization, our business model is, is to take uh, drugs and therapies that are already available and test them for new uses. We don't care if it would affect 50 patients or 50,000 patients. And some of our, our best projects are on really small patient populations where some new knowledge came out that made it possible to do those kinds of things, like uh, autoimmune lymphoproliferative syndrome, which is a blood disease of kids. One of our clinicians sort of put two and two together and uh, did a project testing rapamycin in mice and then in patients to see if it would work. And it's really helped these kids significantly get out of the hospital and basically lead a normal life. Our expectation is it uh, may as much as double the lifespan of kids that have this disease that typically kills in the early 20s. Is part of the ability that you have with not having the, the huge cost of trying to bring a new drug to market, that you can do things on a much quicker and less expensive way to get a knowledge and information out? Typically, to get a new drug to market, it, it costs somewhere between $800 million and $1.2 billion and takes anywhere from about 12 to 17 years to get to market. And uh, even so, if you look at the 50-some drugs that have been approved in the last several years, not a lot of them are making really significant impacts on your patients. So we look at projects that average about $250,000 and take two years or less using already approved drugs. And the benefit of that is if the drug's already approved and uh, new uses indicated, the, you know, the rules and regulations of the FDA allow clinicians to use those drugs on their patients almost immediately. Can you certainly use them for off-label or compassionate use? And as long as there's some good scientific data behind it, you know, clinicians will look at those things and use them carefully, understanding the side effects. But we tend to try and research drugs and other therapies where we already are fairly confident that the side effect profile is minimal, that the cost of the drug is small, and that the drug interactions are going to be insignificant because there's no real good sense of testing a drug where, you know, 80% of the patients aren't going to be able to take it because of side effects or drug interactions. Once you found an off-label use for something that works, is there any push to to get it out there such that it can become an on-label use? Do you have a a method of interaction with drug companies to, to get that? You know, interestingly enough, you would think at first blush that the drug companies would be happy for us looking for new uses for their already existing drugs. You know, they have a great pipeline, a good cash flow, anything they can do to get a new use for it might allow them to get some new patent coverage or make some more money. 
Interestingly, they're not really supportive of this, especially for a drug that's making them a lot of money. Take, for example, a project we have going with a drug called Actos. It's a type 2 diabetes drug that we want to test in autistic patients because there's good anecdotal success from a uh, set of clinicians' offices that this could make a significant behavioral impact on this patient population. Well, the company that markets Actos is not really all that supportive because most of the people that take this drug are over the age of 45 when type 2 diabetes onset is the greatest, and most of the patients that would benefit from this are under the age of 45 autistic kids. And so when we test this drug in a new patient population, it potentially could show side effects that you don't see in the older population. Also, most of the people taking Actos right now aren't taking the kinds of drugs that autistic patients would be taking. So they're a little nervous up at the beginning, but there's nothing they can really do to prevent this kind of research. Now, once we've proved that it works, they're much happier about it because now they have a new indication and often they're willing to go ahead and fund a trial. And a good example of that is a lung cancer project we had going at Mass General where we were testing an anti-malaria drug called chloroquine. It's been around for years. It looks like chloroquine helps Eressa and Tarsiva do a better job of fighting non-small cell lung cancer. So the original work that we did was not really supported by the company that either has Tarsiva, Eressa, or chloroquine. But now that the initial data is in and looks good, Genentech is actually funding the follow-on clinical study to uh, test chloroquine with its drug, and hopefully it'll make sales of its drug uh, more profitable for Genentech and it'll help more patients. How strong is the resistance in the front end? In other words, when you have the idea, do you automatically go to them and ask and or turn down some, but not always? Or has it gotten to the point where you've had your nose slapped so many times, you don't go there until actually you have some positive results? Well, since we're relatively young, you know, we've only been doing this uh, kind of research for the last three years and as a public charity only for about the last year and a half. We're still venturing out to talk to the drug companies. And, you know, we think as we get a better track record and they can see that the kind of research we're doing is really well controlled, good clinical studies, they might get on board. So far, we haven't gotten anybody that up front is willing to fund us. We have one study where the the drug company up front is willing to supply the drug. So um, even though they're not giving us any money, the cost of the drug is fairly high. And so that's the first breakthrough we've had, and we'll keep going. Is there any input that you've received from either local, state, or federal government for any of these research? That's really a whole different track. Our experience and the experience of other nonprofits that have done other kinds of things different from us but looking for government support is you better have a much bigger track record before you go. Either that or you have to have a very strong ally in the Congress or the Senate or someplace in uh, you know, NIH or someplace else before you start working on this. And it, it's very expensive to do the kind of lobbying that would be necessary to get the governments, even state and local governments, to do that. And you know, with so many patients out there needing cures right now, it seems like we should be putting our money and our efforts into funding projects rather than funding lobbying. The other thing is, we're not set up as a public charity to actually do lobbying. To maintain our public charity status, we're actually restricted from any of that kind of stuff. So we'd have to find somebody else to do this on our behalf if what we were doing was soliciting congressmen and senators to start to think about putting a program together. For any of our doctors listening that are uh, that might have ideas of things they would like to do research or to check on, see on what is going on with your organization, what would be the best place for them to go to? The best place is to go to our website, www fourcures.org, the number four, the word cures.org. 
And uh, you can certainly look up under the research funding tab, and it'll explain how to work with us. And there are some downloadable forms. We do everything electronically. The submissions are electronic. The reviews are electronic. The grants are made uh, electronically. Our system, uh, we typically can tell you within 45 days whether your project fits into the kinds of things that we do. Uh, and then we have to go look for the funding for it. So you fund on a case-by-case basis. It's not that you have a pool of funds and say, this looks good, we're going to give it to you. You develop a research product and then go and look for money for that specific project? Yes. At this stage of uh, our development, we're doing it on a case-by-case basis. We've got a campaign going to begin to raise significant funds so that we would have a pot of money into which we could put lots of different projects. And we hope that within the next two or three years, we'll have that significant amount of funding so that you know we would not only be able to review and approve projects quickly, but get them started quickly, too. Thank you, Dr. Bloom, for joining us today to discuss the challenges of drug research process. I'm Dr. Joel Heller. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.